This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 15th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. Mandatory minimum sentencing perverts justice. It robs judges of the ability to judge, and it encourages innocent people to take otherwise unconscionable plea deals. Julie Stewart is president of Families Against Mandatory Minimums. She argues that finally, legislatures are beginning to make positive changes to restore balance in criminal sentencing. Well, it's actually encouraging that there are more people interested in sentencing reform and doing something about it, both federally and at the state level. I think um, the states have been driven pretty much by budget restraints in the past, you know, five, ten years maximum, and have actually made some significant reforms to either repealing mandatory minimums, reforming them, you know, tweaking around the edges. Um, But even in Congress, which I think is sort of the last bastion of... um, tough on crime. Um, There is interest, and one of the big champions of sentencing reform right now is Senator Rand Paul, who um, all of a sudden is many people's darling, but we have uh, been very happy with him the past six months through a year that we've been working with him on on sentencing. And hopefully he's about to drop a bill with Senator Leahy that would um, basically create a safety valve which allows judges to ignore the mandatory minimum in cases where the punishment so clearly exceeds the the you know what's necessary for that person now a lot of states have have stepped down uh, just regular sentences for a whole host of, of drug crimes and you say that, that most of those efforts are being driven by uh, budget concerns uh, where where has that been the most dramatic well, I think Texas is probably one of the best examples, um, and that's where a group called Right on Crime now has uh, been birthed out of the Texas Policy Foundation. And they really were driven by the efforts to reduce their prison population because it was too expensive and um, have created a model for reforming criminal penalties as well as offering some uh, reentry programs so that people who've been in prison well, one, not as many people are going into prison, and two, those who come out are better able to assimilate once they get out. And I think because it's been driven by this conservative state, uh, conservative legislators, that that has been a very effective model in other states. Do you think that's essentially then provided cover for people who describe themselves as conservatives to say, not just as I guess Alan Dershowitz used to say, not get tough on crime, but get rational on crime? Yes, I think that both parties need political cover really to do the right thing. And to a large extent, the Republican Party is far more effective at sentencing reform, at least, than the Democrats are. And that's because Democrats are all afraid of being accused of being soft on crime. But when a Republican whose, you know, tough on crime credentials are strongly in place, steps forward and said, you know, this doesn't make sense, we need to be smarter about how we address these problems, he can do it and get away with it people will listen. How uh, helpful was Jim Webb, uh, who is no longer in the U.S. Senate, but uh, was somebody who cared a lot about uh, reform uh, on sentencing? Jim Webb was great. Uh, I'm sorry he's left the Senate just because he was very much of a champion on not just sentencing reform, but sort of criminal justice reform and thinking broadly about what we're doing in America with our crime policies and how many people we're incarcerating and what's the purpose and what are we getting out of it. And um, so as, a, as an individual, he was fantastic. It's really sad to say that it was impossible for him to find enough support to pass his so-called web bill, which was just really trying to look at, comprehensively look at um, 
criminal justice in America from, you know, who you, who you arrest, who you, where the foot patrols are even, all the way to who goes to prison. And he could not get a bill passed to create a commission to look at that. And to me, that's just stunning that we can't even get agreement on putting together a commission of some kind to look at what's wrong or what's right in the criminal justice policies we have in this country. So you mentioned Rand Paul, who has recently become uh, the darling of a lot of people. Uh, what has he done so far? Well, last year, for instance, in the last Congress, uh, he put a hold on a bill that had a mandatory minimum in it that was pretty obscure. And it was um, a, a mandatory minimum that would not have applied to a lot of people, but those that it would have hit would have been a 20-year sentence. Um, and he was so dogged in his refusal to uh, let this bill go through with that mandatory minimum on it. And so he got into sort of a, you know, arm wrestling or, or probably a dog fight with Chuck Schumer over this um, and ended up prevailing. And it was really to his credit that this bill ended up not having a mandatory minimum in it. So um, that was in the last Congress. Now, in this Congress, as I said, we've been talking to him about introducing a bill with Senator Leahy that would actually create a broad safety valve for judges to ignore the mandatory minimum when it's no longer appropriate or when it's not appropriate in a particular crime. How how big is this problem uh, of mandatory minimums of uh, sort of eliminating judicial discretion uh, at the federal level? Well, I'd say most judges would like to judge. And when they have a, a sentence that's been applied, regardless of the circumstances of the case, the, ind- the facts about the individual or his or her role in it, they are forced to you know, hand down sentences that, that aren't appropriate for individuals, individual defendants. And I think that it, it's such a bizarre concept to me that, in, that we think in America that somehow members of Congress or state legislators who have never laid eyes on a defendant somehow know what the appropriate sentence is for that person based really solely on the crime. We're sentencing the crime, not the individual. And I think that that's so anti-American and that if more people understood that, they would kind of go, really? You mean if I'm convicted of something, heaven forbid, my person won't matter, who I am, what motivated me to do that, you know, whether I'll do it again, what the likelihood of that is. None of that will matter if the, if the crime carries a mandatory minimum sentence. And that's almost all drug crimes pretty much across the country. Um, it is identity theft in Congress. It's certain gun crimes. And these gun crimes are so sympathetic. Um, things like someone who... Um, had problem in the past, did some prison time, got out 10 or 15, 20 years later, they're caught with a firearm in a picture, like, you know, they're, they're a hunting gun that they have, and, and someone takes a picture of them, and the prosecutor from their original case sees it, and they go and arrest them for being a felon in possession of a firearm, and they get a 15-year mandatory sentence. What's left to be done at the state level? What are sort of some, uh, some low-hanging fruit at the state level? Well, we have a very active um, campaign in Florida right now, and it's um, working on two things. One is on prescription drug penalties, and again, trying to give judges the discretion to say, you know, this person had all of this prescription drugs because he was in pain and he needed this much, not because he was selling it. Because right now, if you have more than 35 tablets of uh, Vicodin or a certain prescription drug that are not yours or that were your mother's or that are somebody else's, they can assume that you're selling them 
and that you will go to prison for 15 to 20 years, mandatory sentence. So we're again trying to create a safety valve there. And I you know, just got through a House uh, subcommittee on crime, so we're happy about that. Do mandatory minimums feed what I think a lot of people, Tim Lynch here at the Cato Institute and others, identify as a problem, which is plea bargains? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you're threatened with a very long sentence, a very long mandatory sentence, it is incredibly uh, enticing to plead guilty and uh, avoid it. And some people who are honestly innocent will plead guilty just because they know that in 95, actually I think it's 98% of the cases federally, the government wins when you go to trial. So if you roll the dice, there's a good chance you're going to lose if you go to trial. So people do plead guilty all the time. Julie Stewart is president of Families Against Mandatory Minimums. You can read more work by Cato scholars on this subject at our website, cato.org.